So I went to seminary uh, around, I think I was 27 when I first started seminary. So I was quite late into the game. Uh, I thought I was going to go down this pathway of being a, uh, a medical uh, student at a medical school, and then uh, God changed my pathway. And so here I was at the age of 27 for the first time. I was at this place called seminary, a place where you study about God's word and you learn how to do ministry. And it was the first time I actually had the option to look for different churches. Uh, I, throughout my life, I moved here and there, but wherever I went, I, I either was forced to go to a certain church or uh, whatever church I went first, I just end up settling. So I always been like a one church guy. But now that I was in seminary, now that I was going down this pathway to become a pastor and a minister, I said to myself, it'll be good if I can learn from some of these churches around the area. Now, my seminary was in the middle of the Bible Belt in Fort Worth, Texas, near Dallas, Texas. And so there was a, uh, there was a lot of, you know, big-name pastors, uh, big-name churches, big-name praise teams, and a lot of big-name programs. And so I made a list of different churches that I wanted to visit. I would go to uh, a church in the morning and then a church, another church in the afternoon. And I did that for a couple weeks. And I remember going to this one particular church. And I was shocked because the church address, when I was putting the address in, uh, the road name was, was Blessed Way. And so that's when you know something is up with this church. I go to this church, um, I thought it was a mall. Right? I, parked the, I parked my car, and it's hard to imagine this in Nova, but in Texas, you know, there's a lot of parking spaces, right? And there's a golf cart that comes to you. And, and, and you get picked up, right? You, they escort you to the entrance. AC is blasting. Literally, it's a mall. I walk in. The first thing I see is the, the children's area, right? The kids' zone. And it's like a theme park, right? They have a slide that's coming down from the second floor down to the first floor. They have all of these, these things that you would see in Chuck E. Cheese and different places. Uh, and then you go into the sanctuary, and it's literally a concert hall, and the praise team begins to play, and you can tell that they are professional musicians, right? They, they, they are awesome. I mean, I've been to a couple concerts. The quality of the music is, is about the same. Seats are comfortable. And then the pastor comes out, and I was shocked because they had a different background just for the pastor, right? So they, had, they rule out LED screens, and it was like a, a, like a, like a Broadway show where they had a different set just for the pastor. And I remember saying to my friend, you know, walking out of that place after, you know, having a nice uh, kind of a goodie bag, you know, a welcome gift because I was there. I, I thought to myself, wow, this is a nice looking church. Maybe some of you might wonder, man, I wish I, I, I could go there. You know, I wish, you know, I don't have to worry about parking. I could be ex escorted on a golf cart. Um, but a lot of times, you know, we, we judge churches, we try to decide uh, which church to go, and uh, sometimes the grass looks greener on the other side, and we look at other churches that are big, that are influential in the community, um, but the church that we see in today's passage is nothing like this. It's, it's just a small church. There's nothing that's impressive about this church. If this church was in Fort Worth, Texas, it wouldn't make my list. You know, I wouldn't even think about going to this church because, you know, I would probably look it up 
on, on Google, see the website, see, see the Google Maps, and I would say, no, I'm, I'm not visiting this church, right? It's so small. Uh, it, it seems uh, very weak and insignificant, yet Jesus looks at this church today, and he has a different opinion. He is so pleased with this church. In fact, there are seven letters that are written to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. There are two churches that do not receive any type of condemnation. They don't receive any type of rebuking from Jesus. Last week, we looked at a church, the church of Sardis, which on the outside, it looked alive. It seemed like that church was growing. It, it was, you know, alive. Everyone was having a great time there. And yet Jesus, he says that, well, you look alive, but you're actually dead. And this week, we look at a church that looks dead on the outside. It looks so weak and small on the outside. Yet Jesus says, man, that's the church that I want. He's constantly encouraging them to remain faithful in the Lord, that, that they were doing the right thing, and that he's encouraging them to pursue uh, the pathway they are already on. And look at how Jesus describes himself in verse 7. We know that the description of Jesus in the beginning of each letter is super important. So look at verse 7. He says this, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia writes, The words of the Holy One, the True One, and the One who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one will open. So three things that Jesus says about himself. The first thing is that he is the Holy One, that he's just different. He, he's in a class of his own, that, that he loves in a different way. He, his kindness is a different way. His joy is in a different way. The life and truth that he offers, it's completely different. He is set apart. There's no one who can compare to him. There's no one like him. Jesus says, I am holy. I am in the class of my own. But then he says, I am also the true one. I'm the real deal. I am reliable. I am trustworthy. I am dependable. What he's basically saying is this. If it doesn't fit me, then it is false. Because I am the definition of what is true and right. He's basically saying, if anything contradicts me and my word, then it is a lie and it cannot be trusted. But because I am true and trustworthy, you can rely on me. So Jesus is in a class of his own and he is true. You can trust him. The third thing that he says about himself is this. I hold the key of David. Now this sounds very strange, but it wasn't strange for the Jews. People who were well aware of the Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah 22, you have this scene where there is this steward who's taking care of the house of David, which was a nickname for the kingdom of Israel. And so you have this steward who is basically kind of taking care of, of God's kingdom. And then he gets fired because he was unworthy of it. He, was not doing, he wasn't doing a good job. He was doing a poor job. And so instead of him, God places this new steward named Eliakim. And the Bible says in Isaiah 22, verse 22, God gives the steward, Eliakim, this key. Not a small key, but this big key that can give him access to each door in the kingdom. So it was like a master key that was given to the steward. And so when Jesus says, I hold the key of David, he is saying that I hold the key to God's kingdom. No one comes in if I don't open the door. No one can go out if I don't open the door. 
the coming in and the going out, whether you are accepted or not accepted into God's kingdom, that depends on me. That's what he's saying. You know, if you plan to get into God's presence, if you want to be in heaven, if you want to enter into God's kingdom, Jesus makes it very clear. He says that I am the one who holds the key to the kingdom. That means he has the authority to gain, give access to people who are unworthy so that they would come into God's kingdom by his grace, by his works. He has that power. And it says in verse 8 to the church of Philadelphia, and know your works. Behold, I have set before you not just a door, but an open door which no one is able to shut. So we see how Jesus feels about this church. He says, the door to the kingdom is wide open to you. The kingdom of God is yours. Now, some people say, well, this open door, um, like Paul would use in Colossians 4.3, where he says, at the same time, pray for us also that God may open the door for his word to declare the mystery of the gospel. This open door is an open door for the gospel, for evangelism, to, to share the good news of Jesus Christ and to serve others. Well, that is true uh, in some places. Sometimes it is used in that way, this phrase. But here, specifically, particularly, if you look at the context, it's hard to believe that this door that is open is a different door that we find in verse 7. The same door that Jesus can unlock with the key of David, that door is open to the church of Philadelphia. And so what Jesus is saying is this, to the church of Philadelphia, you are accepted into the kingdom of God. If you look at verse 9, we are told that in the city they are, there are Jews who are opposing God and opposing the church. There were Jews who are called, actually those who belong to the synagogue of Satan. And so you can tell that they had not just bad influence on the church. They weren't just giving the church a hard time, but they were satanic. They were demonic. The things that they were doing, the things that they were saying, it was destroying the church. And yet Jesus says, I know because you are bearing my name. I know because you are called a Christian. I know because you are following me. You are being rejected by this world. You are having a difficult time. You are suffering under my name. You are rejected from this world. However, you are accepted in my kingdom. That's what he's saying. I have placed before you an open door that no one is able to close. Not suffering, not trials and temptations, not the devil, not death itself you have an open door right before you. And so the first kind of principle that we learn from today's text is this. Kingdom acceptance is better than worldly acceptance. Kingdom acceptance is better than worldly acceptance. In other letters, we have seen churches that compromise their faith, that adjusted to the world, that looks just like the world. They're no different from the world. They have lost their holiness. They have lost their purity. They have lost their identity as the people of God. However, this church, they are experiencing rejection from the world. However, Jesus is reminding them that they are accepted into God's kingdom. Kingdom acceptance is far better than worldly acceptance. If you think about it, Jesus, he tells believers, his followers, to live a life just like he did. Um, and what kind of life did Jesus live on this earth? He lived a life for the kingdom. 
and he lived a life that was rejected by the kingdom of the world. People, when Jesus was living according to kingdom principles, when he was living not for the fame and the name of this world, but when he was living for the name of God and the glory of God, he was rejected, he was beaten, he was killed. Um, that was his reputation. That's the life that he lived. And it makes sense for us then as Christians, if we are following Jesus Christ in our everyday life, that we will experience opposition, that we would experience hardships. If we don't experience that, most likely it's because we are just like the world. And, and so the world has nothing to say to us. The world has nothing to reject us. There's no reason the world would make our lives difficult because we are just like the world. We're acting like them. You know, you see in, a, in your family, in your workplace, among your friends, there, there are these temptations, this pressure to adjust to the world. But Jesus is reminding us time after time, especially in today's passage, he's telling us that kingdom acceptance is far better than any acceptance that you can experience in this world. And here's the second point. Kingdom greatness is better than the worldly greatness. Kingdom greatness is better than worldly greatness. Look at verse 8, the middle part. It says this, I know that you have but little power. In other words, Jesus himself, he recognizes that this church is small. They are low in resources. They have little influence. They're not that big of a deal in society. Um, they they are so small that people look down on them. And yet it says, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Although the world looks down on you, I praise you for keeping my word and for not denying my name. People were mocking. They were laughing at this church. They were living in a big city, trying to live a life that's wholly set apart for the Lord. And people were kind of mocking them for, for be, being ignorant, for being, you know, hard-headed, for being stubborn. And Jesus says, no, no, you feel little, that you, you feel insignificant, but you are actually great in my kingdom. Kingdom greatness is far better than worldly greatness. And we see that they pursued, this church pursued kingdom greatness in two ways. The first way is this. They have kept the word of Christ. The word keep means to guard. It means to protect. It means against all the odds. They have protected their obedience. If it costs them something, they would pay that cost in order to keep the word of God. If it costs their relationships, then they would sacrifice their relationships in, relationships in order to keep the, the word of God. If it would cost their job, they would lose their job in order to keep the word of God. If they are to be rejected by society because they have an opinion that aligns with the kingdom, they would be rejected by society and pay that cost because they are willing to keep the word of God. They're not just willing to know the word of God. They are willing to live by every single word of the Lord. And the second thing that we see is kingdom greatness it embraces the name of Jesus Christ. Not only does it embrace the word of Jesus, it embraces the name of Jesus. And a lot of times when we think about this, we say, well, if I just identify myself as a Christian, if I just tell other people that I go to church, isn't that good enough? Well, you have to understand, the name of Jesus in the Bible is not just any name. 
It's the name above every name, according to Philippians 2. It's the name which every knee will bow, which every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Lord. So when you say, I do not reject the name of Jesus, you are basically confessing that Jesus is Lord, that he is king, that his name is above every name. You are basically acknowledging that he is the Lord of your life. Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name under heaven that God has given to us for salvation. Jesus is the only name that can save us. Romans 10.13 says this, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So when you say, I do not deny the name of Jesus Christ, you are saying that Jesus is my Lord and he is my Savior. You're not just saying that with your mouth, but you're living that reality in your life. That you're not being persuaded by different things of the world because you have a king that has your allegiance. You don't, you don't get persuaded by the, all, all, all the things that are going on in the world because you know that your salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. So Jesus says to this little church that you are actually great in God's kingdom because you are keeping my word and you are not denying my name in your everyday life, which means it is absolutely possible to say that you're a Christian, to, to come to church, to sit in these pews and actually deny the name of Jesus Christ. I think our lives, it, it's the best reflection of how we think of kingdom greatness. Some of us, we are pursuing not the greatness of Christ, but the greatness of this world. Uh, we are trying so hard to, to make that next promotion. We're trying so hard to get a better job, to hit six figures, to buy a house, to, to have a healthy family. And I'm not saying these things are bad, but if you are trusting in those things as if those things are going to give you eternal security, if you are living a life as if those things are your Lord, then there's a problem. And so kingdom acceptance is far better than worldly acceptance. Kingdom greatness is far better than worldly greatness. And Jesus gives us three reasons why these two things are far better. The first thing is this. Kingdom acceptance and greatness is far better because it will be proven right. One day, it will be proven right. Look at verse 9. It says this. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. And so Jesus, he gives this promise, this amazing promise. He, he's recognizing that there is opposition, that there are people who are making the life of the church difficult. Especially in this city, it was the Jews. The Jews that are called um, people who go to the synagogue of Satan. No, Jesus, he's not against Jews um, he himself was a Jew. He's simply recognizing that there are religious people in this city who claim to know God and who claim to fear God, who claim to love God, yet they are hating on the church. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we see opposition within the church, within those who call themselves Christians. You can't let your guard down just because someone says, well, I believe in God. Because the main opponents of the church in the first century were actually Jews who feared God. The problem is not that they didn't know God. The problem is that they believed God for the wrong reasons. They believed in God, you know, thinking that, you know, they had some sort of favor because they were Jews. Because they had the law. 
And yet Jesus says one day, you know what? They're going to come to you. They're going to bow down before you one day. And they're going to know that I have loved you. For the very first time in the book of Revelation, Jesus states that he loves his people. And notice that these people are not bowing down to Jesus. In this text, they are bowing down to the people who are following Jesus, which means it doesn't seem like they are Christians. It doesn't seem like they are just now acknowledging that, yeah, Jesus is my Lord, and they're asking for forgiveness, and they're repenting. That's not the picture. What Jesus is saying is one day, those who thought they were right will acknowledge that they are wrong, and those who thought that, that you were wrong will acknowledge that you are actually right. So stick with Jesus. Know that kingdom acceptance and kingdom greatness is far better because one day it will be proven to be right. The second reason that we should stick with these two things is this. The kingdom of God will last. The kingdom of God will not just be proven right, but it will last. In verse 10 it says this. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So a lot is made out of this verse. Is this the last tribulation that Jesus can unleash uh, to the people? There's a big debate about that, but it is very clear that whatever trial is coming, it is given to the whole world. So there will be a time, a moment in history where all the living and the dead is being judged before the throne of God. Jesus will be judging every single person. That he'll being, he's going to bring trials upon this world, the whole world. And what he promises is now, I'm not going to just keep the whole world, but I'm going to keep my people. I will keep you, the church of Philadelphia. You remain faithful. You kept my word. You kept my name. And I'll now keep you. We see that this does not necessarily mean that Jesus is going to take away every sorrow and suffering in our life. In John 17, Jesus says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, praying to God, but that you keep them from the evil one so in these trials and tribulations what jesus is simply saying is this there will become there will come a day where everyone is judged and all things will be destroyed but my kingdom will remain and those who are kept under my name will remain as well if you knew that there was a company that was gonna go out of business in 20 years would you invest in that company would you buy their stock? Probably not. What you would do if you had that knowledge, if someone gave you a heads up that this company is actually you know, pretty flawed and it's going to crumble under pressure down the road, there's no way you'll invest your money, your resources into that company. You would take all the money that you have in that company and you invest it into a healthier, a better, a lasting, a safer company. What today's text is inviting us to do is this. If you're investing in this world, you're making a pretty bad investment. That you're not recognizing the trend of this world. The Bible is very clear, telling us that one day, it says in 1 John chapter 2, that this world is going to fade away along all the things in the world. And yet, so many of us, we are investing, we are giving our words, a life worth of saving, our time, our families, our career, everything, we're investing in this world. And Jesus is saying, don't you see how terrible of an investment that is? That I'm, I'm telling you, take that investment and invest it into the kingdom of God. And although 
It's going to be hard in the beginning. You'll see the fruit at the end. Now, I remember when I was in college, I first heard the name Amazon. I really thought that company was not going to do well. A company that sells book online and other products online, and back in the days, like, you know, it took, like, days, sometimes weeks for you to receive a product. You know, why would I buy something online that i never seen before, right, I, which I can buy at a local store? I can touch it. I can read the descriptions. I can, you know, try it out. Why would I buy something online? I thought to myself, I would never use Amazon again. I'm a proud member of Amazon right now. I have Amazon Prime. I have no idea how would I survive without Amazon during the pandemic. Uh, if someone told me that Amazon was going to be this big, I might have dropped out of college and, and invest all my money, all my resources into Amazon. <laughs> right? You probably would have done the same if you can go back 20 years. That's exactly what the Bible is saying, that it looks like a bad investment in the beginning. But the kingdom of God is worth investing because it will last. The last thing is this. The kingdom of God, the reason why we should pursue kingdom greatness and kingdom acceptance is this. The kingdom of God is stable. It is not shaky. It is stable. Look at verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So two things that are being mentioned here. The first thing is this. Those who keep the words of Christ, those who remain faithful, not denying the words and the name of Jesus. God says, I will make those into a pillar of my temple. And a pillar, I don't know if you know this, but it does not move. It is stable. It is consistent. You know, so what God is saying is your life is going to be steady, not just circumstantially, but even in the midst of all the chaos. If you trust in me, there's going to be this steadiness about your life despite all the trials and tribulations. And the second thing he says is this, I'm going to put my name on you. Three types of names says this, well, I'm going to put the name of my God on you. I'm going to put the name of the kingdom of God, the city of Jerusalem on you. I'm going to put the name of myself on you. And we know that it's a big deal to take up someone else's name. When you get married, uh, a lot of times um, the bride will change her last name uh, to, to the groom's last name. And that's a way to say that now I am with you. No, we are together. No, we are in one family. I belong with you. And so when Jesus says, I give you my name, I give you the name of my God, I give you the name of my city, what he is saying is you are completely accepted in my presence. I'm never going to leave you nor, so, nor forsake you. You are mine and I am yours. So the kingdom of God, it is stable. It is, it, it is unchanging. It is, it is something that we can trust. It is lasting. The kingdom of God will be proven right. And so today, I think the word of God is encouraging us not to invest in this world, but to invest in God's kingdom. Not to pursue greatness in this world, but to pursue greatness in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. 
And those who are accepted in this world will be rejected in God's kingdom. But those who are rejected because of their faith in Christ will be accepted in God's kingdom. Do you believe that? If so, then we should live not for this world, but for the kingdom of God. There are many times when I feel little, when I feel powerless, when I feel insignificant. But God is saying today, you might be little, but Jesus is big. He's powerful. He's great. And it's not because of what you have done, but it's because all that he has, that he has the power to open doors that no one else can shut, which means he has all authority on heaven, under heaven, on earth, and he is your God. So trust in him. Now, in light of this, I want to just make one application as a church. It's been a couple weeks now since uh, we announced the change in, in, in some of our structure and our leadership, and I've been more involved uh, with our English ministry. And there's a question that's been stuck in my mind. I, I, and anytime I pray, um, I ask this question to God, God, what kind of church do you want us to be? What am I supposed to do, God? Um, are we on the right track? Are we doing okay? Especially reading through the book of Revelation, uh, especially the seven letters to the seven churches, I'm asking the question, God, what would you say about our church? Are we a church that is alive but dead inside? Are we a church that has possibly lost our first love? Are we a church that is enduring in the midst of suffering? Are we a church that is compromising our faith? Are we a church that is literally allowing sin in our life? Or are we a church like the church of Philadelphia where on the outside People might think we're little, but you think differently of us. That's the church that I want to be, and that's the church I hope that you want to be part of. Not just a big church that's all fancy and, and sparkly on the outside, but a church that recognizes the authority of Jesus Christ. A church that recognizes that we are here for a mission. A church that recognizes that it is worth keeping the word of Jesus and holding on to the name of Jesus, a church that is different from this world. That's the church that I want us to be. And there's a lot of changes that are going to come in the fall, and I'll announce those things down the road. But one thing I want to encourage us, uh, actually, um, starting from the 28th for five weeks, um, and this was kind of placed on my heart, we want to have a time where we can gather together as a church to pray and seek the Lord. Now, I don't know what to call this. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if it's going to be a worship service. I don't know if it's going to be a prayer meeting. All I know is this. I think God wants us to gather and pray and do the work of his kingdom. That what he wants is not just Christians who are content with their lives. What he wants is not just for us to share, oh, man, I did my, didn't do my QT again. I didn't pray again. Oh, I had a hard week again. I think he wants us to pray bigger prayers and have bigger dreams because he is a big God. And so on Saturdays in the morning, and the reason why we chose that time, first of all, well, our members vote on it. And so it's not my own decision, but our members did vote on it. But one reason why that was, that, that was one of the possible times is because Saturday morning, number one, I know no one is doing anything. Right, unless you're partying late until night, uh, but you're still welcome to come. Uh, uh, but we know that there will be no scheduled conflicts also. We know that it's Jesus himself um, 
in times of need, he, he removed himself from the crowd and he, he, he spent time with, with, with the Father. We also know that great things happen in the book of Acts when the church gathers and prays. And so we're going to call this Church Matters. Um, and because we're going to talk about the matters of the church and we're also going to ch- talk about why the church matters in the first place in our lives. So this is open to anyone. Uh, anyone who desires to, to, to know more about our church, or if, especially if you're a member, uh, this is actually required of you to, to come and, and to listen because we, wanna, we want everyone to be on board. I have no idea what's going to look like, but I know that some good things happen when God's people, they come and pray and they seek the Lord. Let's be a great commission church, a church that recognizes that all authority under heaven and earth belongs to the Lord. And that he is with us the ends of the earth. So all we have to do is not worry about our lives. Rather, make disciples of all nations and do the work of the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray.